The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it's going to be found on page 843. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand the word of the Lord? Well, Pastor Brian is going to be the one uh, preaching for us this morning. Um, He is uh, a fine preacher, and he's one of the men I get to serve alongside with um, as one of the pastors here. And so he's going to lead us through um, uh, Mark chapter 8 this morning. So my encouragement is that you find your Bible, you crank it open to Mark 8, and you listen to what this brother has to say. Thank you. Good morning, Delta. Uh, First, Jonathan, thank you for assigning me the longest preaching text in the history of preaching. Um, uh, Just kidding. We we joked about that earlier this week. Um, It is a long text. We see three different scenes. But I'm going to argue that we can find a common theme in those three scenes. I found that oftentimes looking back in my life, some of the most memorable lessons I've learned 
have come from learning from the mistakes of others. In fact, I think this is generally a true statement. The children's book industry has made a lot of money based on this fact. Think of how many books deal with um, a story, a fable, and you learn from someone's mistake. One of the best and maybe most absurd examples of this is in a collection of stories published in 1840s Germany by a man named Heinrich Hoffmann. It's translated to English soon thereafter, and it's a collection of stories meant to teach moral lessons to kids. There's a bit of humor in there, but it's meant to teach moral lessons to kids. Now, again, this is absurd, but but hear this story. This is the story of the thumbsucker. One day, Mama said, Conrad, dear, I must go out and leave you here. But mind now, Conrad, what I say. Don't suck your thumb while I'm away. The great tall tailor always comes to little boys who suck their thumbs. And ere they dream what he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and cuts their thumbs clean off. And then you know they never grow again. Mama had scarcely turned her back. The thumb was in, alack, alack. The door flew open, in he ran, the great long red-legged scissor man. Oh, children, see the tailors come and caught out little suck-a-thumb. Snip, snap, snip, the scissors go, and Conrad cries out, oh, oh, oh. Snip, snap, snip, they go so fast that both his thumbs are off at last. Mama comes home, there Conrad stands, and looks quite sad, and shows his hands. Ah, said Mama, I knew he'd come to naughty little suck a thumb. Now, take that home. Read it before you go to bed to your kids. It's a great heartwarming bedtime story. But certainly it teaches a lesson. I can't imagine being a kid and hearing that story. I mean, it's kind of like the, the boogeyman stories that, that we hear. Uh, again, we don't advocate this. Not setting this as an example before you. But uh, this is meant to teach a lesson. What not to do. We're learning from the mistake of little Conrad, little suck a thumb. The moral of the story is this, don't suck your thumbs. Now this is a bit of a strong example, a lighthearted example, but oftentimes we can learn much from negative examples. We can learn how to act based on the mistakes of others. And just thinking back, I can think of so many times, so many lessons I learned in life because I learned from the mistakes of others. I can remember this vividly back in elementary school Uh, we received like a pamphlet or a handout. I think this was like second grade. Um, It was about the dangers of tobacco, specifically the dangers of chewing tobacco. And I'm thinking, I'm I'm in second grade. Like, who's going to pull out a pack of Red Man and pop it in in second grade? But but they showed this this once uh, prominent track, high school track star in his prime. And and the, the picture they described, you know, he was a high school athlete. He started chewing and the next photo was was him um stricken with cancer in a bed and for a second grader that's that's sobering it's like okay i I get the point i'm learning from the mistakes of others think back to driver's ed you probably all saw this similar video too but the dangers of drunk driving uh health class i remember watching a video on uh one of the main points of the video was the danger of steroids don't do steroids um and then one of the most vivid examples 
was when I was part of my high school experience and part of college, I was a volunteer firefighter, and we went to this one training class, and it was called Scared Straight. And the whole point of the class was this. It focused on the small, lazy, easy mistakes that firefighters made that cost other firefighters their lives or cost civilians their lives. And it was meant to shock you. It was meant to sober you up. It was meant to think, you better do everything right or people could die. See, during that time, I learned from a negative example what not to do. I learned from the mistakes of others. And in this section of Scripture, we will see three distinct scenes, all involving Jesus interacting with others. Scene one, we're going to see Jesus, a crowd, and his disciples. Scene two, we're going to see Jesus and the Pharisees. And scene three, we're going to see a more intimate setting where Jesus is speaking with his disciples. And in these scenes, we will see very vivid examples of what not to do. What not to do. Scene one. Thank you, Mallory, for reading. Something very familiar, right? Jesus is feeding a large amount of people. It's kind of deja vu. If you, if you have your, your scriptures open, if it's the ESV, the popular edition, if it's your pure edition, if you look over right on the exact opposite page, you find Jesus feeding 5,000. Jonathan preached on this, explained it very well. So not just two chapters ago, we find a very similar story. Not much time has passed, it seems. Jesus did some awesome things. He walked on water, water he taught, he healed the sick, he healed a little girl, he healed a deaf man. And now we get to our story. Verses 1 through 3, let's read this. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far away. So another crowd is following Jesus. A smaller crowd this time, about 4,000 people. And this time, Jesus is in the Gentile area. If you will remember, a Gentile is someone who is not Jewish. So most of the people living here are, are not Jews. They are not God's people. They are not inheritors of the promises of God. So they're not looking for the Messiah. So why are they following Jesus? Well, they're following Jesus because they've seen what he's done. They're listening to his teaching, and they're genuinely intrigued. They're genuinely intrigued. And Jesus says they've been here three days. And I can't imagine being somewhere away from home three days just on a whim. I mean, certainly some of them might have packed a lunch or a lunch and dinner, but three days, certainly they were out of food. And Jesus realizes this. He must be hungry and in dire need. He says if they go home, they'll faint. And so what does Jesus do? The text says Jesus has compassion on them. And then we read verses 4 through 10. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked him, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took a broken pieces left over, seven baskets full and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, I think Mark has these occasions so closely together because they probably did happen closely together. 
But I think he wants us, he's, he's telling us the story. He wants us to see the differences. And certainly there are differences. There's a difference, different number of people there. Uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000, it was the disciples' idea to feed them. When Jesus fed the 4,000, it was Jesus' idea. He said, I have compassion on them. Um, they started with different amounts. The 5,000, feeding the 5,000 started with five loaves, two fish. The feeding of the 4,000, uh, seven loaves and a couple fish, a few fish, a small number of fish. The amount left over, the 5,000, there were 12 baskets full. The, se- the 4,000, there were seven baskets full. So we can dwell upon these differences, but what stuck out to me is the similarity. I think one glaring similarity in this, the one constant, and that's this, the reaction of the disciples. How will the disciples react when given this task? Now, we, we, we should think, okay, G- the disciples were there when Jesus fed the 5,000. So we would naturally think, so obviously when Jesus says feed them, the disciples say, great idea, Jesus. Great idea, Jesus. I remember how you have done this before. Let's do it again. And that's what, no, that's not what we read. Verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, with the 5,000, we can cut the disciples some slack, right? They had never seen anything like this before. They'd seen Jesus heal people, um, cast out demons, etc. But 5,000 men plus the women and children, the disciples were like, there's no way we could feed those. It's understandable that they would say, okay, uh, it doesn't make sense, Jesus. But just two chapters later, a few moments later, we expect they will have some category that Jesus Christ is capable of doing this. But the response indicates something different. It indicates a slowness. Or rather, I think the better word is a forgetfulness. A forgetfulness. See, it doesn't read like they doubted Jesus, but it read they forgot, reads like they forgot how Jesus acted in the past. They forgot that Jesus had provided bountifully in the past. They were just forgetful. And pulling out the mistake of others, I think the same, I can say with pretty fair certainty, the same is true of us. I know it's true of me that we too often are prone to forget how the Lord has provided for us in the past. And we forget that he promises to do so in the future. What I mean by that is, is this. How many times do we get in a situation in our life and think, well, now I've done it. There is no way, Lord, that you're going to get me out of this one. There's no way. Or, Lord, everything is crumbling around me. I know you've helped me before. I know you've helped me big time before. But this must be too even big for you, Lord. Now, although you and I might not say these words to God, certainly if the Lord searched our hearts, he would find them. I know that's true of me. I I go through life, a series of of trial after trial. My life's not that hard, but certainly you go through hard times and you think, God, I know you've you've done this for me in the past, but I I just don't trust trust you now. I mean, just thinking about me, me preaching this morning, I don't preach that often. Every time I've preached before, I come away thinking that at least God used something of that preaching, and I'm, I'm nervous this morning, thinking, what am I, I going to say? It's going to sound stupid. And then I have to preach the same sermon to myself. Brian, remember how God's provided for you in the past. Know he'll provide for you 
in the future. Now, see, this is a confidence we have from Scripture. Think, think about the Old Testament, how many times God has provided for his people, for those he loves. Abraham. Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac because God commanded him to. Abraham, in an act of obedience, is going to do that. And, and the angel of the Lord says, stop. And what do they see to the side? A ram caught in a thicket. God provides. Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery for evil, but God meant it for good. God sustained Joseph during hard times and ended up sustaining Israel in the process. Exodus, when the people came out of Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness where there's hardly any food. And what does God do? He provides for them. What does he provide? Bread from heaven. That's weird. Bread from heaven? God found a way. He made a way. He made it happen. He sustained David when his enemies were on his tail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And brothers and sisters, it's clear in the New Testament that he provides for us as well. I want to read from you Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They're not, they neither sow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he goes on to say, And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fear, field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, brothers and sisters, the Lord is crystal clear in Scripture. No matter your need, he knows it. No matter your need, he will meet it. Philippians, Paul says this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his, rich, to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, this may not mean three meals a day. This might not mean luxury, but God will meet our needs in accordance with what is best for us. So lesson one, unlike the disciples. Now, it's easy to beat up on the disciples, but unlike the disciples, let us trust in God's provision. Let us trust in God's provision. Let's move to scene two. Verse 11. So let me set this up. We, we shift from a huge crowd, 4,000, to a more intimate setting, Jesus and a group of Pharisees. If you remember, the Pharisees were people who were this, I forget how Audrey's Bible describes it, but it's like extra super holy people. People who sought to keep God's law. And that's a good thing, right? Keeping God's law, honoring God is a good thing. But in doing so, they made rules upon rules upon rules around God's law. Concentric circles of rules. So much so that the rules didn't even make, make sense anymore. They weren't honoring to God. They were, the, they were religious and they were proud of it. Now, before we've seen in Mark's gospel that, that the Pharisees had confronted Jesus. See, the Pharisees didn't believe that Jesus 
was the Messiah. They were looking for a political leader, someone to come in power and rescue and redeem Israel from political oppression. And they confronted Jesus before. When Jesus' disciples were walking through the field picking grain and eating it on on a Sabbath day, they said, Jesus, your disciples are working on a Sabbath. So also, when his disciples didn't wash their hands ceremoniously before they ate, the Pharisees said, Jesus, don't your, don't your, don't your guys follow, follow the law? Don't they wash their hands? So what we get, the Pharisees are just nitpicky, argumentative, and they're seeking to discredit Jesus. They're seeking to discredit Jesus. And so Jesus, again, has another interaction, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, doesn't Mark just describe it well? In, in such a short, short phrase, short sentence, we get the Pharisees' heart. They began to argue with Jesus, and they began to test him, seeking a sign from heaven. Now, surely the Pharisees knew about Jesus and what he was doing. I, I listed out all the, the miracles that are, are, are listed in Mark's gospel before this, and it's incredible. He healed a man with an unclean spirit, healed many who were sick, cleansed the leper, healed the paralytic, heals a man with a withered hand, calmed a storm, heals a demon-possessed man, heals the woman with internal bleeding, healed Jairus' daughter, fed 5,000, walked on water, healed the sick in Gennesaret, healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, and he healed a deaf man. And that's all that Mark recorded. Sure, certainly there are many more things Jesus was doing. Certainly the Pharisees were familiar with Jesus, and they knew about these miracles he had been doing, but they needed to see it for themselves Their own eyes needed to see it. And so what do they do? They say, Jesus, give me a sign. It's important that Mark, in verse 11, describes the Pharisees the way he does. Because seeking a sign from heaven wasn't necessarily a bad thing on on its face. In the Old Testament, sometimes a prophet would prove his authenticity by a sign. You think Moses, when he went before Pharaoh in the plagues... That was God proving to Pharaoh that Moses was the real deal. You think of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera, in the Old Testament. So seeking a sign from heaven was with a way of authenticating a prophet's message. But the Pharisees come with the wrong heart. They came with doubting, arguing hearts. And if you notice, when Jesus does miracles, when Jesus does signs, so to speak, They're never just signs or miracles for the miracle's purpose. Never just to authenticate his his ministry. They're always accompanied by compassion. Jesus is always meeting a real need. That's why when I listed those miracles that he performed, those were all miracles helping someone. It's not just Jesus proving who he was and just doing signs and wonders for the heck of it. And we read verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, when Jesus is sighing at you, that's a bad thing. Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got in the boat. And went to the other side. Now, it's hard for us to read over this and not feel 
the weight of this. Jesus is turning away from the Pharisees. Jesus is the only hope of salvation for the Pharisees, and he turns away. It can be hard to read this, but we need to feel the weight of it. The lesson for us is this. The Pharisees did not trust Jesus' words. They needed something more. They needed something more. They simply needed to trust what Jesus was saying. Now, hear me in this. I don't think we believers should place ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees because, of course, we are different than they are, only by God's grace, but we are different than they are. God has saved us. If you're a believer in Christ, God saved you. You're a child of God. He loves you. He will never turn his back from you. We need to hear that. If you are a child of God, if you've been saved, God will never turn his back on you because he loves you and you're his child. So we cannot put ourselves squarely in the Pharisees' shoes, but we can learn from this situation. What can we learn is simply this, to trust in God's words. This was the Pharisees' problem. They did not trust what Jesus was saying. They needed something, something more. It was not a one-to-one analogy. Again, Jesus won't leave us or walk away, but how many times do we not trust the Lord's words? How many times do we seek something more? How many times do we say, God, if I just had a sign or if you just show me something, something more, if, if you would just, just prove this to me, how often do we not believe what God says. How often do we not believe what God tells us in his word? The, time, the, the answer to that for me is often, and I'm, I'm guessing it's the same for you. There are so many things in scripture that God says that we often don't practically or truly believe. Some examples. God's word says that I will never leave you or forsake you. How often, how often are we afraid of God turning his back on us? God's word says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How often do we sit anxiously just condemning ourselves and feel that we are too far out of reach of God's grace when God's word says that I will never leave you nor forsake you? God's word says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. How often do we lose hope and feel that all is lost? See, brothers and sisters, This morning, oftentimes, we read God's word, but don't trust him, saying, I need something more. I need more confidence. I need more assurance. I need you to just do this, this, this in my life, and then I'll do this. What we need to do is trust God at his word. Let us take God at his word, trust in his word, and live by faith. Now, as an aside, if you're here with us this morning and if you've not made a decision to follow Christ, give your life to Christ, I do think this story is applicable to you in almost a one-for-one ratio. If you're an unbeliever here waiting for a sign, waiting for something more than what God has said and what you've heard, if you're waiting for a sign, let me tell you this, you see a sign every second of every day. In our community group last week, we were talking about how so much around us points to God. The fact that I'm taking a breath in and a breath out now, unconsciously, not thinking about it, a gift from God. The fact that I woke up this morning, 
saw the sunrise, saw the beauty, saw the painted colors, a gift from God. I woke up this morning after seeing the sunrise, had a great cup of coffee, a great plate of eggs, sat around with my family, a gift from God, a sign from God. God is taking care of me. He's taking care of you. And also God has spoken to you in his word in scripture. So please believe in God. Stop waiting for a sign to turn to him. Ask him forgiveness and live a life of faith. Unlike the Pharisees, let us trust the Lord's words. Let us look at scene three. Verse 13. And he left, and he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I think this is hilarious because Jesus fed 5,000, 12 baskets full of bread. And the, the baskets in the time they're talking about aren't little baskets. They're like fit a human in baskets. Jesus feeds 4,000. How many baskets are left over? Seven baskets full. The disciples are in a boat, and they've got one loaf. Like, I think this is intentional. I think Mark's painting a picture here. They're arguing. There was so much bread before, and now they just have one loaf. And then Jesus gives them this <clears throat> seemingly enigmatic, cryptic, kind of mysterious warning out of nowhere. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I don't know why Jesus is mentioning this now or exactly why he uses this, this analogy to describe the Pharisees and the Herod. Certainly when we think of leaven or uh, it's, it's yeast, when you put yeast in bread and it expands and it, it has a small amount of yeast has a great effect on something. So I, I think Jesus is saying, watch out because the Pharisees, though they're few in number, Herod, though they're just a couple, couple of Herods, they will have great, great impact, great influence. Uh, but, but the disciples, it's amazing, they seem to completely ignore Jesus, right? And Jesus says, beware of leaven of Pharisees, leaven of Herod. Next verse. And they began discussing one another, the fact that they had no bread. And so Jesus calls out the disciples. He doesn't let it go. He calls them out, and we read in verses 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand and the implied answer is, no, we don't understand. The disciples failed to understand, failed to grasp the significance of Jesus' teaching and the significance of Jesus' ministry up to this point. I think you and I would be literally in the same boat with the disciples thinking the same thoughts. Jesus is talking to us. 
we'd be concerned that I'm hungry when I have anything to eat. They have failed to grasp the significance of Jesus' teaching and his ministry. The disciples have been witness to Jesus' incredible and awesome miracles and teaching, but their minds are still concerned, still concerned with earthly and physical things, that is to say, bread. Now, just a bit ago, the disciples were first-hand witnesses, and I think we need to imagine just how first-hand witnesses, how much, first, how much of a first-hand witness they were. It's not like they were standing off to the side and they watched Jesus do this all. If you read both, both versions, the, the, the five, or both, both instances, the 4,000 and the 5,000, the disciples are handing out the food and the disciples are gathering it all up. So it's tangible. The disciples would have been, would have been firsthand witness. I couldn't imagine handing out this small amount of bread and then picking up these baskets full of bread. Boy, what a lesson. What a memory. It's something I think the disciples would probably talk about the rest of their lives. But yet they didn't get it. They have practically forgotten that Jesus is capable of providing bread for them. That's, that's the funny thing. Like they had one loaf. Certainly Jesus could have done another miracle and fed all of them, right? They've forgotten that Jesus is capable of providing bread for them. And their physical hunger has hindered their capability to listen to Jesus. In short, the disciples' minds are set on the physical, the here, the now, and their earthly circumstances. My encouragement for us this morning is let this not be true of us. Let us not miss out on the things of Christ because of earthly distractions or our slowness to pay attention. Scripture is clear that our focus should be beyond the right now. Paul writes in Colossians this, he says, then if you then have been raised with Christ, which is true of Christians, he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So set your mind on things that are above. Stop seeking the physical while ignoring the spiritual. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not someone who believes that all matter is evil. I love a good steak. I love a strong cup of coffee. I love seeing my kids growing up. I love a nice kiss from my wife. I love these things. It's not to say they're wrong. They're good. They're good gifts from God. But we should, they should not be my focus. My focus and our focus should be on Christ, and my hope should be in him. Set your minds on things that are above, above. Flee greed and the accumulation of stuff. This is a trap for me. I can't tell you how many times I'm bored and I just pop up Amazon. Like, oh, I could get that, I could get that, I could get that. It's I'm trying to fill something in my life that only God can fill. I'm not setting my th- mind on things that are above. I'm setting my mind on, on the here and now. Set your mind on things that are above. Fill your head with the Bible. Read God's word. Look forward to the hope of glory where there's no pain or sickness or death. Set your mind on things that are above, not the here and now. So unlike the disciples, let us set our minds on things that are above.
Oh, brothers and sisters, the Lord, I believe this is true, the Lord wants us to be more than we currently are. And we see this in a couple ways. First, the Lord saves sinners. God was not satisfied with me being apart from him, with you being apart from him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live on this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that satisfied God's wrath so that I, you and I, would not be subjects to God's wrath. We would not be condemned to hell, and we would live forever with him. He was not content with where we were. He changed our hearts, brought us from darkness, put us into light. And this is good news. God was not content with leaving you where you were. And the second way I mean that is this, is that the Lord changes those he loves. The Lord changes saints. The Lord changes Christians. We're not stuck where we are. We're not stuck who we are or how we are. The Lord loves us too much to let that happen. You are not stuck. The Lord graciously allows us to turn from our sins, our doubts, our fears, our anxieties, and our despairs, and turn to him, the one who loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for us. He has set you free from those so that we can trust in his provision. We can trust in his word. And we can set our minds on things that are above. So my encouragement for you as I leave you this morning, let's do those things. Let us seek the Lord. Let us trust in his provision. Let us trust in his word. And let us set our minds on things that are above. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You're good to us. You have rescued us from our sin. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Lord, knowing that, we know that you will give us everything we need. We know you will provide. Help us to overcome our unbelief. Lord, we know that your words are true. Help us to listen to them. And, we, and God, we know that there is so much more than the here and now. Help us to set our mind on things that are above. God, by your grace and for your glory, I pray that you do this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.